This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, my name is Richard Poet and welcome to a special edition of the New European Podcast. We will, of course, be back with myself and Steve on Friday, but now we thought we'd bring you uh, a special interview conducted by Lord Andrew Adonis, New European regular, of course, and the former Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, where he talks about everything from coronavirus, China, to reforms of the World Health Organisation. Sit back and enjoy. Uh, Kevin, as an Oxford uh, grad, we all uh, take it as a huge compliment that you're doing a, a PhD at Oxford at the moment on uh, uh, what couldn't be a more topical subject than President Xi's worldview. Uh, you've been following China clo- more closely than almost anyone in the West for 45 years. How does his worldview change significantly, do you think, from what we've got used to in, in the post-Deng regime? Is it a big change? Are we moving to a big new form of dictatorship or is it evolution? What's going on? Analytically, um, I think we're looking at a cocktail of uh, some evolution and some revolution. Uh, the best frame for looking at this um, academically and uh, analytically is how the Communist Party itself under Xi's leadership has begun to evolve um, its own definition of its central core priorities. Um, to put this into context, when Deng Xiaoping came back into leadership uh, in uh, October of 1978, um, he formally redefined the party's mission. It wasn't just an informal definition. And the way in which he formally defined uh, the new mission uh, was to take the machinery of Marxism-Leninism, historical materialism, dialectical materialism, and uh, frame his worldview 
uh, in Marxist terms along these lines. One, China was still in the primary stage of socialism. Uh, number two, uh, within that primary stage of socialism, there was inadequate development of so-called factors of production, hence China's poverty. And three, therefore, for the foreseeable future, China would be in the business of using whatever means possible to develop the factors of production, that is, to enhance its economic development. And from that ideological transformation away from class struggle and an international solidarity view of the world, including some support for international revolutionary movements, so was born the modern Chinese worldview. So you roll, you roll the clock along through Deng Xiaoping, through Jiang Zemin, through Hu Jintao, from 1978 through until, frankly, uh, the 19th Party Congress held in 2017. By and large, all these congresses of the party re-emphasised uh, Deng's original line and added elements to it. Um, the essential being reform and opening being the machinery to develop the Chinese economy. And we'll handle the social consequences on the way through. And if everyone gets, anyone gets out of, out of hand politically, uh, we will uh, thud them. Um, that's essentially what the game plan was. And we saw that in Tiananmen in 89. We've seen it in lesser forms since then. Now, the reason I've said all of that is that Xi Jinping and his heart of hearts and mind of minds is something of an ideologue. That is, that this uh, ideational world actually means things. Uh, the, the closest equivalent I could offer you, Andrew, is, is it's a bit like the authority which the Catholic Church attributed to the Council of Trent at the time of the Counter-Reformation. So when the party meets in Congress form, it's looking at the core fundamental pillars of ideological belief. So under Xi Jinping, what we have seen is the retention of some of that on the economic development front, but a slower pace of economic reform. And on the question of opening being a doctrine by which China would open to the outside world in order to enhance its domestic economic development, that too has been reinterpreted into the more assertive China that I think forms the basis of your question. So I'm sorry to put all that into a long ideological frame. The reason I do so is quite deliberate is that uh, Xi Jinping is a deeply ideological leader. Mm. But two questions arise from that. Firstly, is this a new dictatorship? Are we looking at a new but hopefully slightly more rational Mao? And is there a fundamental ideological conflict with the West which had previously been managed since then but now is going to flare into the open? Are we into what is going to be a really I, mean, I know one of your running themes at the moment is how to avoid the avoidable war. Are you saying that because you think that the combination of quasi-dictatorship, maybe real dictatorship, and ideological conflict is going to make this really, really difficult to manage over, uh, over the coming years? Well, under the party's constitution um, since the get-go, uh, including under uh, Deng and the rest through to Xi Jinping, it is a people's democratic dictatorship. What we've seen in practice, however, is um, let's call it um, the ebb and flow of levels of party control. But with Xi Jinping, it's headed in one direction, which is towards a greater centralization of party power over the state uh, machinery, party power over the liberty of, let's call it uh, China's entrepreneurial culture, 
and party power over, let's call it, uh, academic and cultural freedom. Mm. And, and, and that is, is personal power. Is this an assertion of personal dictatorship as well? Yes, and in terms of the, let's call it the more brutal exercise of, um, of the power of the leadership, we've seen that through the deployment of the anti-corruption campaign to eliminate political opponents. So you put all those things together on, let's call it the political, uh, ideological and cultural side, it is, has been a significant concentration of power uh, to the point where he is not primus into pares, he's just primus. Then on the economic side, which is the real dilemma, you've seen a similar transference of, let's call it, uh, an approach to centralization of political power to a re-centralization of authority in relation to the economy. And the problem here, in reality, is the Chinese private sector has taken fright. And as a result, prior to the COVID-19 crisis, prior to, uh, prior to the uh, trade war between China and the United States in 18 and 19, there was already a slowing of the economy, uh, evident in the data, because suddenly the uh, room and political space and policy space given to the private sector to grow was constrained. So for these two reasons, you see measurable qualitative change uh, under Xi Jinping's uh, ideological redefinition of his own role and that of the party. Before we get to COVID-19, we want to come to in a moment, how far that's a game changer. Were, were all of the moves taking place in, in West relations with China, were they all before this negative? Or was there anything positive? You mean on China's part or on the part of the West? Uh, both, in terms of our mutual relations. It looks like a, a picture of, of, of pretty unrelieved gloom since in, in the last five to ten years. Is that, is that a fair summary, that things have moved backwards, understandings about uh, uh, international rules, openness, trust, we're all moving backwards. And that this was to be, if you're, look, if you're standing back and looking at it, obviously there's a certain amount of, uh, of short-term partisan politics, you know, with Trump and, and with different governments in uh, Australia and so on. But actually, to be, to be blunt, this is six of one, half a dozen of the other. It's serious moves backwards on the part of the new, more ideological, as you put it, Xi regime, being matched by maybe unduly provocative, but nonetheless understandable reactions on the part of the West. I think uh, that's broadly correct. On the, the prime mover in this has been change on China's part. Mm. Um, if we're looking about static and dynamic factors in international relations, China has been the dynamic factor mm -hmm. changing, uh, both in terms of not just its internal political posture along the lines we've just discussed, but on the external assertion of power, geopolitically, South China Sea, to some extent Taiwan, um, certainly uh, its... Uh, uh, rollback against American uh, forward positioning militarily in East Asia and the West Pacific, and China's greater role in international institutions in terms of the positions it holds mm. and pushing those institutions in a direction much more commensurate with China's national interests mm. and, critically, national values. Mm. So there's been a China dynamic at work uh, since Xi Jinping mm taken over at late 12, early 13. In terms of the, let's call it, international reaction to that, uh, we saw this unfold in several phases. 
President Obama sought to engage the new Chinese leadership uh, and form a, um, a type of, uh, I won't say combined administration, but mutual understanding about how the machinery of global governance could operate uh, and deploying that together, hence the outcome on climate change at Paris in 2015. But with President Obama, uh, sorry, with President Trump, it's been a much more fundamental uh, ideological and geopolitical reaction. And so you saw that the national security strategy of late 2017, China for the first time defined as an ideological, uh, as a uh, strategic competitor. Uh, furthermore, the trade war of 1819. And now let's call it the uh, rolling explosion in both the economic and political relationship. Mm. So we cannot justify in rational terms every element of American reaction, particularly given that a lot of it has been incoherent. But in terms of China having been the prime mover, generating a, an American reaction, that I think is a fair analysis mm. of the overall mm. dynamics. Mm. Looking, looking at your own record, which I've been uh, studying over, over the last week preparing for this, both as, I mean, as a diplomat, as prime minister, and subsequently, is it fair to characterize it as tough on China, to, and uh, so very tough on China, but very engaged? Your message has always been- I think that's fair. I mean, I've, I've been criticized uh, in Australia at least, uh, and to some extent internationally, for being either too hard or too soft at various times. But because I'm a student of Chinese politics and because I'm a student of Chinese language, I kind of understand the nature of the Chinese Leninist state mm. and what you're dealing with here. And these, this, is, this is not a bunch of Sunday school teachers. Uh, mm. This is a hard, hardened, Soviet-style Leninist regime, but having fully embarked upon, uh, let's call it um, perestroika without glasnost. And as a result, you've ended up with an authoritarian state in China's mm. case, which has economically succeeded uh, so far while maintaining uh, political control without having gone down the glasnost route. Mm. So from the get-go, I've been relatively familiar with the way in which this operates. So therefore, my engagement with the Chinese is in office and out of office has been along these lines. One, Australia is a long-standing ally of the United States. That won't change. Historical reasons, but also future reasons. Two, we're a proud Western liberal democracy. We believe in universal values. And guess what? They're not going to change either. That's who we are. That's our identity. Uh, three, we've got a lot of common bilateral economic interest. Let's prosecute that uh, to our mutual advantage. And four, we belong together to most of the institutions of regional and global governance together. And let's work constructively along those lines, which we've done in the G20 and elsewhere. So when I say a balanced relationship, it's firm mm. on the first two, mm. uh, engaged on the second two. Mm. The danger, I think, in many Western reactions to China is that they either pretend the first two don't exist or suddenly discover that mm. the first two are the only two. Mm. So that's kind of my learning. Yeah, that, that all sounds perfectly sensible given the situation we're in. There's one bit, though, could you just explain a bit more? In One of your themes is that the only language which uh, the uh, Xi regime understands is power and uh, the, uh, the ally to power, which is force. How do you both remain strongly engaged whilst speaking the fairly brutal language of power and force? How do we put those two together? Well, I think it's a deep analysis of where the Chinese Communist Party comes from because in its pre-49 experience, 
and its long historiography, it's wrestled with those realities uh, for decades and decades before becoming the state power in China. And then after that, uh, it faced these parallel dilemmas uh, in its relationship first with the United States and then the Soviet Union after the Sino-Soviet split. So engagement mixed with, or uh, shall we say, being prosecuted at the same time uh, as, let's call it, an utterly realist view of state-to-state relations is something not alien to uh, China's worldview and diplomatic and political practice. I think what we find in the West problematic uh, is that duality and, shall we say, effectively uh, reflecting it in the sort of policy praxis in which we get engaged. So my argument is China's used to this. We in the West have not been, partly because China now has uh, recently changed, but we've got to get rapid, rapidly mm. used to it. Otherwise, we go from we're in love with China to a second Cold War and then ultimately the risk of a hot war. Two other big picture things before I get to COVID. Firstly, is it right to describe the new China now as an imperial power? Because, you know, I'm very struck as you look around the world now, uh, China is everywhere. You know, it's in Africa, it's in all of the, the, um, uh, the primary producing nations. It's got a whole web of what, you know, people looking at the British Empire would see as informal empire. But then also, uh, China's becoming a serious military power, which we haven't seen in recent times as well. And, uh, you know, there's loads of stuff now in the media about new stealth bombers and all of that. If you put these two aspects together, are we facing a serious military threat from China? And are we basically dealing now with an empire, not with uh, a, large, a large state? In the case of what China has done over the last... Uh... 20 years, um, effectively since the United States became utterly preoccupied in the war against terrorism, is China has, A, rolled itself out economically across the world. Firstly, under Jiang Zemin. Jiang Zemin just said, go out and do business. He had a Chinese expression for it, just go out and make some cash. Um, and guess what? They did. And they're very good at it. Um, secondly, um, what you also then found is that not only did Chinese uh, capital find its way around the world, but Chinese people. So across Africa and Latin America, you'll see millions of Chinese go out to the world, set up yeah. small businesses, medium businesses, large businesses. So this has been a long stage, 20 year process. But this is all a bit like early stages of the British Empire. Well, that's true. If you were to study the history of um, the uh, East India Company, mm. um, apart from you know the odd spat between, with the French and Robert Clive and the rest of it, mm. uh, basically it began as a commercial ex- mm. exercise. The missionaries followed, and the state, uh, in its military capacity, uh, then as well. Except in our case, you just had to set up a jail, so that was <laughs> fine. Um, but going back to the central task here, which is. Uh, So if you see this evolution of China's engagement over the last Mm. 20 years, phase three, if you like, uh, was uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, 72 participatory states, uh, large and small, active and and, uh, passive. But underpinning that is a key piece of economic infrastructure uh, to do with uh, the rollout of China's digital RMB, uh, international e-commerce systems, uh, 5G networks, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, and then, the f- if, you, if you like, the fourth wave of this 
is the beginnings of a level of militarization, depending on which of the uh, Belt and Road partners you're talking about, but the so-called uh, uh, string of pearls across the Indian Ocean, Chinese ports from Southeast Asia, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, across to Pakistan, into Djibouti, respectively on the East African coast, and associated with that airport development as well. So the reason I say that is that it has evolved in this direction over time. Mm. I, where I do not use the term imperialism is that I see nothing in China's current practice or in its historical perspective that it actually wants to occupy territory. That is alien to their, their interest. Mm. Maximizing, however, their economic and strategic interests through a series of other relationships that is their interest. Mm -hmm. So we're Speak looking at something that is somewhat sui generis. Yeah, understood. Speaking as an Australian leader, do you now see China as, as a military threat? I see China as a military challenge and not a threat. Um, and what's the difference between the two? China has changed the military dynamic in East Asia, um, not just because of South China Sea, uh, not just because of, frankly, the acquisition of capabilities, which are much more blue water in orientation than was the case before. Uh, but again, uh, when I qualify the language in terms of threat, it's because when you ask yourself this question, is China a military threat to Australia's territorial integrity? Well, no. Um, China has no interest in violating our territorial integrity. Where China has an interest uh, is in increasingly supplanting Australia, for example, as the uh, principal uh, power for engagement in the Southwest Pacific, and uh, certainly uh, over time displacing Western interests in Southeast Asia. So that is at a level of geopolitics as opposed to direct, direct mm. military to terror Australis incognita. Do, do you think Australia's defence spending over the medium term is going to have to rise simply in response to China? Yes, well, in. Um, uh, my period in office in our defence white paper of 2009, uh, we were actually the first regional government to identify China as a clear military and strategic challenge for the region and to do so explicitly in our published documents. By the way, it sent the Chinese government nuts at the time. And this was three years prior to Xi Jinping taking over. Um, and as a consequence, uh, in that white paper indicated that for the future, our defence outlies had to be A, 2% of GDP and three growing at least 3% annually. Um, my own argument is that, and I've written this, is that Australia's defence outlays will need to increase over time beyond that base. And secondly, in order to afford that, we continue to need to expand our population base in order to frankly make 2% of GDP, 3% mm. growth annually uh, matter, given that we have such huge territory, one of the longest coastlines in the world, uh, I think the third largest special economic zone in the world, um, and therefore as a consequence, uh, we face ourselves mm. as a credible nation state, um, long-term resourcing challenges, mm. which we mm. must meet. Mm. Yeah, a, a, a final big picture question. Is this a monolithic ideological dictatorial regime or are there more liberal elements in it which sensible policy would be seeking to encourage? Is that a misconception for people like me who don't really understand this regime? Is it, uh, are there 
bits of it which are much more favourable to us and our worldview, which we should be fostering, because after all, there is intense Chinese engagement with the West, and they know all about us, or is that a misconception and we should deal with it as an ideological monolith? The political and security apparatus is reasonably monolithic, but with some exceptions. For example, Xi Jinping recently had to purge the Vice Minister for State Security, or Public Security, I should say, because um, that person was not fully loyal. And so there are still fractures and fissures even with that side of the operation. But when you get to the policy apparatus of the Chinese state, um, and certainly the Chinese academy, and let's call it Chinese social media, uh, it is an increasingly, shall we say, diverse beast. And so Chinese body politic is also divided between nationalists and globalists, uh, between China first types and xenophobes on the one hand, versus uh, mm. those who uh, have a more cosmopolitan view of the world. And let's call it classical Leninist ideologues on the one hand, versus those who have been trained in the Western Academy for the last 40 years who have a different, as it were, mm -hmm. worldview. The key challenge, therefore, for international diplomacy and high policy and politics in dealing with China uh, is, not to, is, is certainly to define the operating strategy of the Chinese Leninist state. That's critical. But secondly, to understand that in our public language, in addressing China and the Chinese people, that we're looking at a much more variegated reality. And I think that's a more sophisticated way to proceed. One of Trump's major, use a technical Australian term, screw-ups um, mm -hmm. over the COVID-19 crisis um, has been, uh, frankly, not realising that when China was in grave difficulty in January and February this year, to extend the hand right. of the Chinese people and say, we're with you as this action of global solidarity and American global leadership. Instead, you had a fair bit of uh, popping of champagne corks, as I wrote recently in Foreign Affairs magazine, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the hope that the Chinese geopolitical bubble would implode. Well, let's, let me tell you, that was disastrous in terms of its filtering through to Chinese public opinion when people literally in the country were fearing for their lives. Uh, so this understanding of people, let's call mm. it broader political establishment and Marxist-Leninist party, this is a set of differential concepts which we as those who engage China must be aware of in the manner in which we conduct our own diplomacy. Mm. So we should, we should be very pro-China, whatever our uh, concerns and challenges in dealing with the regime. That's your message. In terms of the Chinese people, Chinese civilization. There's a difference between the Leninist Party on the one hand, mm. the Chinese nation on the other, the Chinese people more broadly, mm. certainly the Chinese diaspora. Um, and... Whereas, uh, frankly, when you see some of the stuff rolling out of Washington sometimes, mm. it just gets all rolled into one. And it's, frankly, just unfair and unhelpful. Which international leader at the moment, do you, you know, person who actually holds office at the moment, do you think gets this balance best at present? No, remarkably, I think uh, Shinzo Abe. Um, in Japan, you would think, well, that sounds normal because Japan's next door. Not really. I mean, mm. the pathology in the Sino-Japanese relationship since, well, mm, the first Japanese yeah. China in the 1930s has been, mm. shall we say, problematic, mm. uh, to say the least. Yeah. But I've got to say, in Zoabe, in the last couple of years, I see a much more nuanced appreciation 
of what he's dealing with in terms of Xi Jinping's leadership, the broader Chinese national body politic, and the diversity of the Chinese economy. Mm. I haven't seen that yet evidenced on the part of the European leaderships, mm. uh, either national or collective, uh, nor in the case of uh, the United States. Shinzo Abe probably comes closest. Mm. Is there something that Abe's done specifically that you would recommend to, your, to look, at, look at in terms of a model for how we should be dealing with China? Yeah, Shinzo Abe, partly because Japan has so many equities um, in the Japan-China relationship, like if it goes bad, it goes really bad. And it's not all that much difference, sorry, much of separation geographically between Tokyo and Beijing. Um, I think it's this, and I'll make it as a general point rather than a specific action, is that Japan is always very careful and very consistent and the way in which it manages its operational strategy and operational diplomacy in dealing with China. There continue to be rolling incidents every day around Sankoku Diaoyudao, the contested territories in the East China Sea mm. between the two countries. At the same time, Shinzo Abe does not launch into a public ideological diatribe against China, the Chinese government, Chinese people, every other day because he feels mm. like it or because mm. he's picked up uh, that morning's Nikkei uh, or uh, Yomiuri Shimbun and said, well, let's have a go. This sounds, mm. this sounds interesting. So there's actually a discipline in terms of a quite hardline operational strategy on the one hand and a, uh, a greater delicacy in Jap Japan's public diplomacy in dealing with China on the other, picking its fights where it needs to as opposed to as a matter of course. Uh, which seems to have become the operating principle in Washington. Mm. So the, what the, the lesson I would draw from that is that we should be working much more closely with Japan on our relationship with China. Is, is that... I think if you're looking for a mature political system, which um, is a democracy, uh, which has a relatively open economy um, and is a G7 country as well as being a G20 country, uh, I think there is a lot of wisdom which has been accumulated and I say this not as a personal friend of Shinzo Abe. I know him, but don't know him well. I've just observed the growing maturity of his, frankly, engagement. And the key thing is always this. Understand what your operational strategy is, mm. which in Japan's case is very hardline. Mm. But mm. at the same time, prosecute effectively both an economic uh, strategy and a, let's call it, public declaratory strategy, which, which is more sophisticated and nuanced. Uh, mm. than what you find um, coming out of um, mm. uh, Washington. Yeah, and without, and without the megaphone, is your point? Yeah, without the megaphone, but I can I say, beneath the surface, it's hard. Whereas I find with many of my European friends, whether it's in London, Paris or Berlin, there's often an assumption that uh, you must uh, put the megaphone away for permanently um, and mm. roll over and have your tummy tickled uh, every second right. Thursday. As, as a way of dealing with our Chinese friends for fear of uh, upsetting them. Can I just yeah. remind the European audience that you are dealing with a Leninist state uh, as existed in the old Soviet Union in the 1980s in terms of its essential political construction. So therefore, do not think that it is a rolling exercise in Socratic exchange. You have core interests, core values, stand up for them, yeah. but understand disciplines of declaratory strategy and operational strategy. Yeah. Now, COVID-19, is it a game changer? Because people like me who haven't, um, who, who've been basically in the position that you've described are thinking, 
strong engagement, but be tough with China. And I'm really worried about how you engage, even in trade, which has been the big mutual benefit, how do you engage with a regime which now uh, twice in two decades has exported a lethal pandemic to the world, and this time so much worse than SARS? How do you do it? I mean, the, the level of trust, the institutional engagement you need, you know, all of those supposedly fail-safe uh, reporting systems that were supposed to have been put in place with SARS, well, they clearly haven't worked by the nature of the regime this time. So what do we do? How, how do you maintain a, uh, an engaged relationship and trade with a regime that exports massive legal pandemics? I think the first thing we've got to do, and I've said this to many of our Chinese interlocutors, um, has been um, whether Beijing likes it or not, there will have to be um, an uh, international inquiry to establish the facts around each of these propositions, uh, which is where did the virus come from? Um, how is it transmitted? Was the notification procedures domestically between the provincial government and national government effective or not? How big was the delay? Um, was there a delay notifying the WHO? And what did the WHO then do about it? And did China attempt to dilute the WHO's message? But then there's another question, Andrew, which is uh, what the hell did the rest of the world do when the mm. WHO did warn everybody? And we could make, a, I think, a cogent case that there hasn't been a robust uh, preparatory response by various countries in the West uh, either. So it's this whole spectrum. So the Chinese up until now have said to me, well, you know, that's terrific. Um, Trump's only interested in a scapegoat. Why would we ever be party to such an investigation uh, when the things which we believe we've done right internally would be ignored and the things which were foul-ups within our system will simply be capitalised upon? So the reason I say this is there has to be a global clearing of the facts here my recommendation, which I read in, I think, Time magazine last week, is get the UN Secretary General to impanel a high-level panel of both Chinese and non-Chinese scientists with wide terms of reference to get to the basis of this so that the Chinese will be confronted with what they got wrong, but actually not everything they did was wrong. Um, a lot of it was, but not all of it was. So that, I think, has got to be the baseline um, clearing house before we go to the next stage about the terms of subsequent engagement. Yeah, but does that process require the agreement of Xi or not? How will you get yes, Chinese scientists to engage properly if Xi is opposed to, the, to this process? Well, the truth is um, Chinese scientists as of today are still dealing with scientists uh, routinely uh, in the United Kingdom, in the United States, in Australia, about every element of how we're handling COVID-19. Much of this scientific collaboration continues. The reason I know it is that I've been, through my own think tank, intermediating some of that, but only a small part of it because most of it's spontaneous occurring, including between the two centres for disease control in Atlanta and in Beijing. So the scientists actually speak the same language. It's called empiricism. Um, and... Uh, and uh, Therefore, the capacity to do this is, um, certainly exists on the Chinese mm. side. You are right to say, however, the political green light has to go on from Xi Jinping. 
before this can occur. And the debate in Beijing right now is whether to participate in any such enterprise or not. Hence, my own recommendation is the only politically neutral platform to convene this is probably the UN Secretary General uh, and through a panel of, um, of scientists, both Chinese and non-Chinese, to establish the facts. Um, will they agree to that? I cannot predict that. But the debate is being had in right royal fashion within China now, internally. What do we do if they don't? Well, I think we've, um, uh, under those circumstances, uh, for all of us who engage China in the future, it's going to be highly problematic. Um, and let us go to basic questions of recommencing normality. What do we then do about uh, the flow of Chinese students uh, around the world? What do and we do about everything? the reconstitution of flights? Mm. Uh, what do we do about the future of Chinese tourism? Um, and let's face it, all of our embattled economies welcome all of the above. Mm. Uh, but not if there is a lack of confidence in terms of mm. control systems within those within China itself. I've got to say, though, Andrew, speaking to Chinese officials, they're currently more concerned about the robustness of our control systems in terms of sending their kids into these places uh, in the ultimate irony of what's unfolded here. Yeah, well, and of course that's understandable, but then it's, perfect, it's reasonable for us to say that this is all consequent on the problems that we had unfortunately exported. But coming exactly. to the heart of the issue, because this is going to be a really massive issue, do we make renewed engagement a new normal with China? That is, flows of students, flows of goods, reopening of airports and flights. Do we make that conditional upon them agreeing to your very sensible proposal of a UN-led independent review of the causes of uh, COVID-19? Do we make the one conditional on the other, or what? If we don't, how do my we... Advice, my advice to both Beijing and to other governments engaging Beijing is that this must happen. And unless it does happen, however you wish to wish it in the future, nothing like a reconstitution of normality will occur anyway. Um, I simply regard it as a statement of, as it were, intelligent fact, uh, rather than elevating it to the um, high levels of diplomatic preconditionality. Um, and there's enough smart people in China, and I think in the West, to work out uh, that, frankly, this has to be done. As one of my interlocutors said to me recently, there has to be a global clearing of the air on this. Um, mm. We have to know the facts. What was the role, if any, of the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Most scientists I speak to say zero, because there's a naturally occurring COVID-19 mm. virus, which appeared in nature probably in and around the wet markets of Wuhan, and then it was off, mm. um, which raises a question, well, why weren't the wet markets properly closed down after the SARS outbreak of 2003? Um, fair question. But then again, why aren't wet markets being closed down right around the world where exotic animals are still for sale, including mm. bushmeat in Africa, for example. So mm. therefore, I think it's one of those ones, despite the fact that uh, the world has seen unprecedented, I won't say unprecedented, but significant carnage in terms of the public health impact and almost unprecedented economic carnage post-depression post uh, from this, that the Court of International Public Opinion and the peoples of the world will demand answers for this, something which I've written repeatedly um, in the period since the virus erupted and which has been, I hope, circulated in Chinese mm. leadership circles mm. to say, 
this is not just a CIA plot to humiliate China. The rest of us who don't work with the CIA on a daily basis, mm. we have a deep interest in understanding mm. what's the nature of this reality. So I think that is, I, I hope that is seeping through. Mm. Would, it, would it make it easier, do you think, for the Chinese to go along with this if this independent review you're looking at didn't just look at China, but looked at global preparedness for dealing with a pandemic? Or would that make the thing, do you think, just unmanageably large? Well, there's a danger of the latter, Andrew, but my recommendations is around three things. One, terms of reference which deal not just with the China end, but also deal with the WHO end mm. and deal with what the rest of us did about it um, by way of appropriate national preparations. Mm. And as you know, that's a multi-varied beast around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, that it needs to be a, a panel which contains both Chinese experts, but non-Chinese experts drawn from countries who have been most impacted by this mm. around the world. And thirdly, the more I've thought about it, the only individual who can convene such a panel without going to uh, another body to get a political authorization to do it uh, is the UN Secretary General. Mm. The UNSG routinely convenes high-level panels. I've served on them myself in the past. Mm of one form or another. They're not uh, a reference from either Security Council necessarily or the General Assembly, uh, but they can be convened. And the SG will have to put together uh, the right people on the panel who are professionally unimpeachable while being mindful of the geopolitics of the composition of the panel as well. Mm. Unless Isn't that happens, we're going mm. to end up in, this is a rolling and spiralling uh, set of mutual uh, accusations which will frankly become another deep geopolitical disruption. Do, do, you think, do you think Secretary General Guterres sees it the same way? I don't know. I haven't spoken to him about it. Uh, my um, article has been drawn to his attention. Mm. It was only published last week, uh, but I'm not sure. Uh, but I know the SG uh, would be mindful of how do you achieve a, a mm. breakthrough here. Um, because short of that, Andrew, I cannot identify mm. a mechanism you either end up with a China national mechanism, which frankly the West in particular, but others won't trust, um, or you end up with a, um, you know, 14 uh, special purpose uh, committees of the United States Congress uh, and various, you know, politically driven mm -hmm. hanging judges uh, all looking for their 30 seconds of fame. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think the rest of us actually know mm -hmm. what are the facts here and yeah, what's yeah, the yeah. likelihood to repeat. Yeah. What sort of person should chair this panel? Should it be a politician or should it be a scientist? I think the only politician who should chair this channel, uh, chair this panel, is Xi Jinping, is uh, is uh, Guterres himself. Himself, right? So he should chair it himself, you think? Because it's so it's so yeah. important. Otherwise, the nomination of a chair becomes of itself a controversial right. matter. Right. Um, is is there I a think the, for the Secretary General but, chairing a, a panel like this himself? I mean, obviously, this is completely unprecedented territory. So it would seem to me to be exactly the kind of thing he should do. But is it, it's in, it's, because that's a big thing. It's a big thing you're saying that he should personally chair this. Because well, it'd be the big because, thing that you end up. Because it's a big thing to deal with a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, and I would have to go back to my own um, book precedents to see uh, which uh, such panels have been um, uh, put together before. One that I worked on, for example, the SG, then Banky Moon, 
empanelled two serving presidents around the world uh, to, uh, as it were, oversee what we're doing. Uh, but ultimately, uh, they are also answering to ESG. Uh, I would strongly recommend that uh, the SG uh, chair this because it would simply be too controversial to appoint mm. some mystical person uh, who will be, uh, uh, by definition, neutral. Um, mm. Historically, you look for a Swede, but the Swedish relationship with China at the moment is about as toxic as the American one. Uh, yeah, and as for the, I don't know. Um, but uh, you'd be flat out finding somebody who would tick the boxes. Yeah, the terrorist there because he has not been vetoed by any of the P5, and yeah, that yeah, therefore yeah. gives him his cred. Yeah. Also, those of us who, who have uh, observed him have a high degree of confidence in him. I mean, he's uh, he's both consensual and effective. That's how, which is the combination you're going to need for this, isn't it? Yeah, I think uh, the ability to forge. Uh, a consensus based on the scientific fact. Um, and I think that's, that's absolutely critical here. So I would certainly encourage Antonio Guterres to uh, head in this direction. Um, but uh, because to go back to your fundamental question, Andrew, I do not see normality returning uh, to international relations as they, between any of us, frankly, around the world, let alone our separate bilateral relationships with China, until the basic facts about origin of virus, transmission, uh, mutation, uh, therapeutics, vaccine, deployment, WHO role, and the rest of us, uh, what we do yeah. about it. Yeah, it was old. Completely wrong. Yeah. Now, this issue of the WHO itself, uh, you've been out there, Kevin, saying that uh, there needs to be fundamental reform. And you said that actually the... Uh, the stance that uh, Trump is taking might actually be positively helpful because it gives the rest of us the chance to step up to the plate to offer more funding to the WHO in uh, return for reform. Can I just uh, press on two, two issues? What's the, the big reform that you think needs to take place? But secondly, how can we actually turn the WHO into something that's really effective if the US isn't fully engaged? That's true. Um, after the um, Ebola crisis, uh, from memory, 1314, um, uh, there were two major effective international reviews that I can recall. Uh, one uh, called, I think, uh, the Stocking Review, Barbara Stocking from the United Kingdom. Um, and the second, from memory, uh, was, goes by the euphemism, the Lancet Review, after the British Medical Journal. Uh, these can be uh, readily Googled. Anything you need to know about WHO reform is in those sets of recommendations. Um, I came along and did a review of the UN multilateral system in 2016. When I got to global pandemic management, I read these two reports and said, what can I possibly add to this? So my own review of uh, UN global pandemic management said, set up a series of timelines uh, for the uh, SG and member states to act on the two previous sets of review recommendations. Mm -hmm. So in, in the guts of it is essentially twofold. A, they've had money bled away from them by things like, um, uh, let's call it um, uh, other operations like Gavi and the rest. Uh, and I'm a full supporter of Gavi and I've contributed as Prime Minister and Foreign Minister hundreds of millions of dollars to the Global Alliance on Vaccine and Immunization, because they do such a great job. 
But many governments have looked at the Garvey donation as effectively uh, a substitute for what they should continue to be providing funding for the WHO for. The second, that's resourcing on powers. It is uh, the powers of the uh, Director General of the WHO uh, to become more autonomous in issuing immediate notifications to the rest of the international community uh, to remove uh, the potentiality for uh, those declarations being circumscribed either by the Secretariat or by member states through the Executive Committee. Now, that's my, that's my broad summary of the two mm. sets of mm. recommendations. Uh, that, that's a big agenda and an important one. Do you think the WHO has been too close to China through this? Yeah, the honest answer to that is, Andrew, I don't know. Um, I've seen all the accusations fly. Uh, I have known Tedros himself when he was A, health minister in Ethiopia and then B, foreign minister. Mm. And I've seen him a number of times and I've been in Addis over the years. And so I actually don't have the data points. Uh, and mm. one of the reasons why we need, frankly, uh, a UNSG high-level panel is to produce an account of this. Mm. Um, I, I, I mean, I've seen Tedros's visit to Beijing. I saw what he said about Xi Jinping. Um, and, but I do not know the extent to which that operationally impeded them uh, from issuing the declarations that were eventually released, or was it a bunch of other factors? So at this stage, I just give them, I won't say the benefit of the doubt, I just say, mm. I don't know. That's my mm. honest answer to your question. Okay, but what you're saying is, is, uh, is, is big. You're saying that pandemics need to be right at the centre of what the WHO do. It needs to be better funded. It needs to be more autonomous and it needs to be more focused and it needs to be more strongly led. I mean, those are, it's a big, big, I think big the, things that need to happen. The structure of funding is quite critical here. When you have uh, what is normally called the um, allocated uh, funding from the UN as a proportion of UN uh, budgetary contributions, uh, then that goes uh, in a non-hypothecated fashion to WHO, which then goes to its core responsibilities, which post-48, when the institution was created, have essentially been core business on pandemic management. However, when you start to have individual uh, discretionary budgetary contributions from nation states, guess what's happened? They walk in with their own pet projects and say, here's an extra 200 million bucks for you, um, Mr. Tedros, so long as you um, are dedicated to the future of the Titi fly uh, in the following latitudes uh, for the next 10 years. Well, that's terrific. I'm sure it's intrinsically important. But the structure of the funding actually diminishes the operational flexibility of the WHO and its Director General to attend to its core business. Mm. What, what kind of timeline would you put on this? You mean a completion of a review? Yeah, my own judgment is the international community will not have patience beyond 12 months from start to finish, um, which means getting it going now. And the reason why that's critical is that if we look at all of our national timetables for the beginning of the ending of, um, of lockdown before you get to the middle of the ending of lockdown, to the end of the ending of lockdown, not wishing to sound like Winston Churchill here, mm. um, the, uh, uh, then frankly, by the time we get to the end of calendar year 2020, we're not going to be in much shape for a normal resumption of international reality mm. until 2021 anyway. Mm. So if I was the SG, max 12 months, I'd try to have it out 
done and dusted by the end of the year. By the end of this year? Yeah. With, with a view to the fundamental reforms being made early next in, year. So the whole thing is done within 12 months. Yeah, yeah. 12 well, months of review and reform. Yeah, I've worked around these things before. You can hear a lot of facts put to you, and that's critical in terms of the essential data points. But ultimately, it'll be for the SG to hold the pen and to write this thing. Mm. Um, it's one of those things that you won't be able to delegate. Um, in fact, most of these high-level panels ultimately consist on a lot of people providing facts, a small number of people mm. pontificating, and then someone deciding to exercise mm. the draconian responsibility mm. of writing the bloody mm. thing. Um, yeah. And that's, that's the hard bit. Yeah, I, li I like the sound of all this as a timeline. Can, can I just inject what you've been saying about the M7? I like yeah. the idea of the M7, the multilateral seven who come together seeking to strengthen multilateral action. And of course, reform of the WHO is going to be crucial in this. How do you see the M7 working alongside a big Guterres review of the kind you've just described? Look, uh, for the benefit of um, uh, your listeners, what I describe as the multilateral seven, um, hopefully they can become the magnificent seven as well, um, is to triage the essential institutions of global governance until once again at some stage in the future we have some level of functional equilibrium in geopolitics uh, around the balance of power between China and the United States. Because at present, uh, the imbalance of power, or shall I say the contestation of the balance of power, is causing most of the institutions of global governance to become increasingly binary, bipolar, and therefore increasingly dysfunctional. So my argument against that background is the multilateral seven uh, can, if they pool their resources, both politically and financially and diplomatically, triage these institutions, keep them alive and semi-functioning until we have a, a better set of arrangements in mm. geopolitics. Um, so their core business to begin with is to make sure the WHO continues to function. Um, and therefore, they would have to work cheek by jowl with the SG to make sure that the system continued to function while simultaneously it was under review. Um, and the reason I randomly selected these seven was not actually a random selection. I'm looking at countries with A, critical mass, that is significant countries who've got chutzpah uh, and capability, B, a predisposition based on previous postures. Of, of wanting a functional multilateral system uh, and see they can put some money behind it. So hence my recommendations for Germany, France, the UK, Brussels, plus Japan, plus Canada, uh, Singapore, not a G20 country. Uh, mm. But then the future, you'd need someone from Africa, someone from Latin America, mm. South Africa, possibly Mexico in the, in the case of Latin America. Uh, and then... Um, um, maybe from the, uh, the Muslim world, our friends in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. But max 10 to get mm -hmm. things done, and critically with enough, shall we say, common thinking um, and common strategic planning and common, dare I say, planning staffs working together to actually mm -hmm. triage the system, mm -hmm. to keep it I yeah, I can begin to see a virtuous circle there, because if the M7 is also going to be a big future additional funder to the WHO, 
then of course what it would do would be to make its additional funding contingent on big reform both through the Guterres uh, com Commission or whatever it's going to be called being set up but then its recommendations of reform actually being implemented next year that's how the two would come together then. Is that a fair way of thinking about it? That's exactly it. I mean, I would see these things as conditional. And so that um, uh, here's a bucket of money, but it's on the condition that these structural reforms actually occur. And dare I say it, across the rest of the international system for our other critical institutions of global governance, like, for example, the World Trade Organization, that a similar approach is adopted. Mm. And for the rest of the machinery of global governance, including the UNFCCC. And one of the reasons uh, the 10 nations vote of seven to 10 nations that I've spoken about, M7, M10, um, is that most of them come from the G20 because ultimately if we wish the machinery of global governance to continue to function, uh, my argument is that most of the roadblocks that we've run into so far, either on climate, on trade, and now on pandemics, uh, unless you have a brokered outcome amongst a range of principal states, drawn across various continents um, through an agency like the G20, then you end up constantly in this position whereby the tyranny of one through the principles of, um, of uh, unanimity in uh, UN institutions will ultimately be a recipe for nothing ever happening. Mm, understood. Uh, Kevin, you said a lot of big and important things over the last, uh, over the last 50 minutes. Just uh, coming back to the big picture again, finally, are we on the verge of a new Cold War with China? The argument I put um, into a piece I've just written about the post-COVID global order in Foreign Affairs magazine in the United States uh, a few days ago is I call it Cold War 1.5. Um, and I'm not trying to be cute here. I'm trying to actually give it some definitional clarity. One of the characteristics of the Cold War, mutually assured destruction, um, uh, third country... Um, uh, proxy wars. Uh, thirdly, on top of that, uh, also um, you had zero economic engagement between the old Soviet Union and the United States. And then you had a full-blown ideological contest. Mm. That's essentially the four mm. characteristics. Mm. Pre-COVID, what did we have? Some level of mutually assured destruction because the Chinese do have a second strike mm. capability in their nuclear arsenal and they are modernising. Secondly, um, you had some evidence of an emerging ideological conflict between uh, authoritarian capitalism and state capitalism in the Chinese model versus liberal capitalism in the US and the Western model. Thirdly, however, um, you had uh, no third country proxy wars, but a big question mark, which we've already discussed, on the future evolution of the Burton Road Initiative and the extent to which it becomes militarised and countermeasures are taken against that uh, by the United States and others. But fourthly, the big new factor is what happens with bilateral economic engagement between these two countries. Decoupling during the course of the trade war in 1819 was a catch cry, but frankly on the core elements of the economic relationship outside of 5G and certain key technologies, yeah, uh, was reflected mm. in reality. But now, an extension of the technology exclusions, a real look, re-examination re of the extent of US and Western dependency on China for pharmaceuticals and other medical exports in the future, a breaking down of global supply chains, 
a greater sense of now national economic resilience. But here's the big one, opening of questions now about the future of the financial market engagement between these two giant financial powers. Uh, debates in Washington about decoupling of US pension fund investment and Chinese equities, uh, the future uh, of um, the Chinese digital currency seeking to circumvent uh, dollar intermediation. If you start to see decoupling um, mm-hmm. reflected in financial markets, then you're in to Cold War territory because that cracks the back of the economic mainstay of the US-China relationship during all the evolutions of the last 20 years. So why do I say 1.5 as opposed to 2.0? There's enough for me to worry about in terms of what's now happening with the financials to suggest that there is a trend underway. And, mm. uh, and that disturbs me because if we are then into 1.5 to 2.0, the next question is, um, who's the architect of the new detente uh, learning from the US-Soviet Cold War model to mm. prevent a Cold War relationship mm. from tripping into a Cuban missile crisis. Mm. Well, I think I could see the title of the next Kevin Rudd book. <laughs> but may, meanwhile, Kevin, thank you very much. Uh, just a, a final personal question. When is your PhD in Oxford going to be completed? And can we all turn up for the Viva? <laughs> well, I hope, I hope those attending the Viva are in a good frame of mind, those conducting the Viva. But as a former president of the country, I have this funny feeling I might get a rougher viva than most. <laughs> yeah. When's it, when's, it gonna, when's it gonna be done? Uh, well, according to my supervisors, I have just over 12 months. And so um, they've, uh, they, they keep reading the other stuff I'm writing and keep asking me for when's the next chapter. So by the end of June, I have to have my chapter done on uh, Xi Jinping's uh, 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 report to the 19th Party Congress conducted in 1917, 2017, I should say. So uh, I'm working my way through that as we speak. In fact, I was working on this, Andrew, just before you rang. Can, can I thank you for this this interview and also send you on behalf of all the new Euro- European readers our very, very best wishes, both in the work you're doing internationally, but also in uh, ensuring that those examiners in, uh, in Oxford give you your just desserts. Thanks very well, much. Thank you very much, Andrew, and all the best to all of you in, uh, in Europe and in Blighty. You've been listening to a special edition of the New European Podcast. Steve Anglesey and myself will return on Friday morning, as usual. But that was Lord Adonis with Kevin Rudd. I hope you enjoyed it.